Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And uh, yes, I would love to have you take your Bibles and find the book of Isaiah. You'll be wanting to do that for a number of weeks coming up here. And if you're not quite sure where that is, uh, hold the Bible up. It's kind of like just to the right of top dead center, if that kind of helps you at all. Book of Isaiah. I am so excited to come here with you. Uh, to, to study the book of Isaiah is to prepare you to study the New Testament, really. Some have called the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. It is quoted extensively in the New Testament, secondly to Psalms in the number of quotations in the New Testament. And um, I want to just reflect with you on a couple of uses of Isaiah in the New Testament as we today lay the groundwork and I hope build an appetite for what is to come. If you read the the book of Acts, the story of the early church, you come to chapter 8 where Philip, the evangelist, is sent by God to a specific meeting, and he is going to be out there kind of in a remote area, and along comes uh, an Ethiopian guy who works for the the queen of Ethiopia. He's kind of right next to the muckety-muck. And and as he comes along in 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 his chariot, he is reading... What else but the book of Isaiah? Who'd have thought? He's got the book of Isaiah, and he's reading part of chapter 53, and it captures his attention because it talks about one who was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before its shearers, so this one opens not his mouth. And he's wondering, who is he? Who is this? And God sends Philip right at that moment to meet him. So the man slows the chariot. Philip jumps on board, and the man says, can you tell me who it is of whom the prophet is speaking? And in Acts chapter 8, you find Philip, beginning with that text, he tells him the gospel of Jesus. The man comes to saving faith in Christ and soon is baptized on that very same journey. Interesting, the springboard to that conversation of Jesus was the book of Isaiah, Not surprising, really, because Isaiah 53, as we'll get there some months from now, tells the story of Jesus in such detail. Uh, Similarly, in the New Testament, you come to Matthew 15, one of the many quotations. Here, uh, Jesus, in talking to some hard-hearted people, says, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he's quoting the book of Isaiah. Mark begins his gospel with a, a quotation from Isaiah, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And off he goes to tell the story of Jesus. So to, to, to understand Isaiah really is to prepare yourself to, to read the New Testament with greater understanding. So if you look at what we have in front of us here today, uh, I, I want to spend some time uh, introducing us. And I've given you a number of things we'll move through quickly and then get into chapter one today is, is our intent. So we have a lot ahead of us. So I want to talk about Isaiah the person for just a moment and a few details that I won't repeat every week, but here you go. Uh, Isaiah was a spokesman for God about 2,750 years ago. The number keeps changing because, of course, Time marches on. So depending on what source you read, uh, they'll give you a little bit of a different number. But, you know, we're doing our best with the years. He served during a time of great change, political upheaval. As we'll see in chapter 1, verse 1, he lists four kings who sat on the throne during his, his time of service as a prophet. 
A couple of details about him now in addition. His name, Isaiah, means the Lord is salvation. And of course, our, our artwork tries to capture some of the theme. This will be our artwork for at least the first half of our study. We may change it up when we get to chapter 40 because there's a, a marked change of tone in the book. But hope in the God who saves. Well, Isaiah's name itself captures that kind of an idea. The Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. And so even to say his name is to reflect on this key theme. Now, some political details are so important, and they're going to they're bear throughout the book. Uh, if you know your history of the Old Testament, uh, there are a couple of key dates. You don't have to memorize very many, but a couple are helpful. So nation of Israel, um, 12 groups or 12 tribes, in 931, they had like a civil war, a split, similar to our civil war, as in north and south. And the 10 groups in the north uh, separated from the two groups in the south. And 931, that's after Saul, David, and Solomon, the United Kingdom, there's this big divide in 931. And the split remained, okay? So, so 931, that northern group, 10 groups, 10 tribes, maintained the name Israel, and the two groups in the south, the two tribes, took the name Judah, which was the name of the biggest group or the biggest tribe there. So Israel and Judah. So you, you kind of need to know that because sometimes if you're reading in the Old Testament, you'll read Israel and it'll mean all of them, you know, all y'all, good southern term. And, but after 931, Israel would just mean the north. So you just kind of have to know that. Now, I mentioned on your sermon notes here, Assyria to the east is the main world power. Indeed, 722 they come in and conquer the north. Uh, in the north, there were no godly kings ever. A whole line of kings, not one, not one was a follower of the God of the Bible. So Assyria came in and kind of wiped them out, and then they just left the guys at the bottom, Judah, uh, holding on. Assyria was knocking on their door, and that story shows up in the book of Isaiah, as we'll see it uh, again some weeks from now. But, but Judah, the group in the south, maintained their identity till 586, Ooh, the final, the final bad moment when Babylon just kind of took them out too. More of this we'll go over as we get along, but you kind of need to know uh, the north, the south, Assyria to the east, Babylon on the rise. It's just important to know. Now, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Interesting, uh, people have noted this well, there are 66 books in the Bible, to, to think about the breakdown of Isaiah, you can understand the whole Bible. 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, which is exactly the way the book of Isaiah breaks down. Did you know that? 66 chapters, and there's a marked change at right at the end of chapter 39. The first 39 chapters kind of form a, a, a group, and then 40 to 66, so 27 that there's a big shift, enough to where some people have said had to be a different writer. Well, no, not necessarily, because if you're writing bad news and judgment, and then you shift and say, chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says the Lord. There's a shift. So you're going to change your, your words. You're going to go from, you're in deep trouble now, mister, to uh, good days are coming. Uh, and let's look at God. So there's a, there is a, a big shift that takes place. 39 chapters, 27 chapters. Very interesting. Oh my goodness. I list here my, my uh, boy, what is that? Number five or number six bullet point. The term, the Holy One of Israel. I love this. It's used in the Old Testament 31 times, 25 in Isaiah. 
right here in this book, the Holy One of Israel. So again, I think our artwork uh, is intended to capture that. Uh, Thank you, Kelsey, for that. Judgment and hope. People who study Bible books come up with a lot of different themes, and there are many represented in the book of Isaiah, but these are two of the major ones. Judgment and hope. So you'll want to keep track of that. I, I wanted to, before we read the text, I want to think ahead with you for just a moment. Some of you, having read and studied the New Testament, will, will remember certain things that are quoted. And in the months ahead now, uh, we are going to remember some very familiar things. You may not know why they're familiar, but we'll read it in Isaiah and you'll say, man, I don't remember when I last read that, but that's really familiar. It's probably because it's a connection to the New Testament. And you may have read it there, okay? But there are some things coming up, and I want to hit just a few highlights of Isaiah to, to let you know where we're going and hopefully to build in you something of an appetite for, for the journey we're going to take. Um, it's going to take us about eight months. Um, it took eight months to do the 13 chapters of, of Hebrews, and we're going to do 66 chapters in eight months, which means some of the chunks will be bigger. But you'll see that as we move along. Isaiah 1 is where we'll begin. Isaiah 5, in a couple of weeks, is an extended story of a vineyard, the Lord's vineyard. And it lays the groundwork for one of Jesus' very famous parables, stories about a vineyard, where, where the, the people who ran the vineyard were corrupt. And so when Jesus tells that story, he doesn't say it, but he's referring back to the text we're going to study in Isaiah 5. That's why the Jewish people get so mad. It's like, wait, we read that story too, and it's on their mind. Isaiah 6, when we get there in October, that's the text where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up on the throne, and the seraphim are crying out in his presence, holy, 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 and everything shakes, and Isaiah falls to the ground. Amazing vision of, what, of Christ, really, as we'll see when we get there. Isaiah, Isaiah 7, uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child. That's Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9 is the text, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9. You come down to Isaiah 11. It's the often quoted text where the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Looking ahead to days of hope to encourage us. Chapter 25, wonderful, short chapter, really, where it talks about the day that death is swallowed up forever. Do you long for that day? It's Isaiah 25. Death is swallowed up forever. We reflected on that a couple of years ago at Blue Christmas with the Grief Share crowd. Isaiah 25, there will be a day when God swallows up death and it is no more. Thus says the prophet. Uh, Isaiah 36 to 39, there's going to be a, it's a big section. We'll take it all at once. Four chapters that tell history and conflict and war has to do with the Assyrians and all that. But there's an example in that story of, of Hezekiah, the king at the time, realizing we're in deep trouble and I can do nothing about this. And so he takes the problem and he goes in before the Lord and he, he unrolls it before the Lord. Lord, here's my problem. I can do nothing about this. 
oh God, show up here, please help. It's a wonderful model for things that are beyond our our help as well. Chapter 40 begins, as I mentioned, comfort. Comfort my people. And that's where the, the story of John the Baptist comes in. And the text we heard already from Pastor Luke, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. That's Isaiah 40. You come to Isaiah 52, starting verse 13, into chapter 53, the song of the suffering servant that includes the famous words, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The gospel right there in Isaiah 53. Come to Isaiah 55, and again, there's an invitation to come. Whoever's whoever's thirsty, come. It's the voice of God, come. Are you thirsty? Come to me. Come. Seek the Lord till he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Wow. And chapter 65. Again, big section looking ahead. Uh, It's the one that we sometimes hear in other literature. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Nothing will damage or hurt each other anymore in my kingdom. So we have a journey ahead. There are going to be chapters of judgment and chapters of hope, chapters that look ahead to Messiah Jesus, chapters that look ahead way beyond us even now to, to the eternal state. Okay? I, I'm excited about all that is to come. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. Well, I just wanted to do that with you. And I'd like to pray, and then, then we'll read the text. All right? Join me here. Father, how good it is to open the Word of God and to now to come to this important book, the book of Isaiah. And how I thank you that we get to spend these weeks uh, delving into these 66 chapters. And I pray, O oh God, that you would open our hearts to, to hear and to understand the text and in the text, the writing here in a book, that we would see you and we would understand more what it is to know you and love you and follow you. So help us now, even today, as we lay the groundwork for this. In Jesus' name, amen. So on your sermon notes, then, I give you a little paragraph uh, under today's text uh, describing what's going to happen here in this, in this particular chapter. Three participants. There's the people and God and Isaiah the spokesman. And as I read the text, verses 1 through 20 is what I'm going to read, you will notice a change of voice And I'd like you to pay attention to that. That is, the one speaking changes, and it isn't always identified. Okay? So you'll see that by the words that are used. Who's speaking here? Those are the kinds of things you want to ask as you read any part of the Bible. Who is speaking to whom? And what are they saying? And I I mentioned a little further down, this is kind of like a courtroom scene. So if you think of it that way, it might be helpful. And I'm only going to read verses 1 through 20, and this will be a model for us moving forward, meaning some of the chunks are big enough where we will, whoever preaches, will be preaching representative parts of the text, maybe not covering every single verse, okay? Hope that's not troubling to you. It shouldn't be, because in your groups, you can read more, and in your own private study, pick up all the parts that we don't. But verses 1 through 20 of chapter 1, I think, uh, in a more succinct manner, help us to see the message. So I want to read... Uh, Isaiah 1, 1 through 20, as we hear God's word together. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a, like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom, and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's word. Wow. Do you feel where we're heading in the weeks and months ahead? God has something to say. And there is in chapter after chapter an intensity. Uh, God is not in most places speaking from an easy chair. He's speaking from a throne. Calling his people with authority, clarity to repentance. Now, I want to talk through these 20 verses under three headings. And you see those represented there in front of you. Verses 1 through 9, I think, form a a unit. Verses 10 through 15, and similarly, verses 16 to 20, I think are, are, uh, you can see a mark, uh, a shift in tone or voice 
that I think marks a section. So in verses 1 through 9, I think we see God speaking as, a, as this righteous judge, maybe an indignant judge, an indignant ruler uh, of his people, and he is looking at what sin produces. And I didn't want to quote Dr. Phil here, but I was thinking the whole time of his, you know, the famous line, how's that working for you? And I think that's from him, and that's part of this text. He's describing how awful it is, and he's saying, Are, I mean, is this what you wanted? Is this what you wanted was a devastated country and devastated lives? Really? Are you happy now? There's this tone. God, the righteous judge, calling to account his people. Uh, Heaven and earth, of course, I mentioned. There's, I think, a, a hint toward Deuteronomy here. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, as chapter 1, verse 2 begins. Four times in Deuteronomy, God calls heaven and earth as witnesses of the promises made. Uh, you, you can look those up yourself, but I think this is very similar to that. Uh, like a courtroom where there are witnesses. You heard what he said. You heard what she said, right? Heaven and earth. When they said, we'll follow the Lord. Remember that? I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today. Whom are you going to serve? And the people said, well, we're going to serve the Lord. And God said, okay, well, then let's do this. Deuteronomy. And how here he's saying, okay, witnesses, speak up. You remember this? Verse 3, God, God says God's people are making the animals look smart. Isn't that great? There's a certain amount of irony here, I think. You know, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's crib. You know, your dog or your cat knows to run to the door and pretend like it's, you know, they're happy to see you home. Um, I, think it's, I think they're just covering for what you're going to discover in the rest of the house. But, but animals, of course show a certain deference to their owner, if only to get food. And he's saying, and, and you people, what's the deal? Even animals are smarter than this. Animals know to acknowledge their owner. And I'm the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. What's going on? And then I, 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 just, I just sense the anguish here. As you read verses 5 through, through, through 7 in particular, 5 through 8, is it is it... Is it righteous anger? Maybe, certainly. But I sense an angst and a sadness. And you and I know about that because in our lives, all of us know people who, who have walked a certain road to the point where it's clearly hurting them. And we end up saying, come on, come on, turn it around. Really? I mean, I mean, I, I know you can't be liking your life now. I, I know you've got to be in pain. What is it here that keeps you from turning it around? I, I think that's the tone here. From the sole of your foot to your head, there's no soundness. And you're, you're beaten up and, and you're, you're, you're hurt. Your country's desolate. I mean, come on. You can sense the, 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 the longing of God's heart. And, I, you know, I want us to pick that up in the book of Isaiah. We all have a, 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 a mental way in which we hear in the Scripture the voice of God. And there are stern places where God speaks, moments where, indeed, let all the earth be silent. But, but you also hear God as a, as a loving and kind and merciful and just Father saying, come, come, 
And if in your mind you only hear God as angry, you're, you're missing a big part of the Bible, okay? God's anger typically is reserved for those who continue in sin and rebel against him and reject every bit of him. So as you come before God, even when you mess it up pretty good, you're not coming to a God who is, is, is hard to win, you know what I mean? Who's standing there with his back. If you're one of his children, God isn't standing there with his back toward you. Then convince me. Grovel a bit. Oh, no. If you're one of God's children, his face is turned toward you. And he's eager to see you come every single time. Okay? So, so, so know that, please. So even here in this text, uh, as, as the God speaks, his voice here saying, you, you, you are so devastated. Come. He's a righteous judge. Come to me. Now, I note on your, your, your sermon notes here on that second page, rebellion against God does not produce good and lasting fruit. Indeed, um, it's true for a nation. It's true for the individual. Uh, rebellion against God doesn't bear good fruit. It doesn't. It doesn't bear good fruit. Now, I, I hasten to say, sometimes in this life, people get away with stuff for a long time, huh? That's reflected in the Bible too. Psalm 37, where you read, fret not yourself because of evildoers, or be envious of the workers of iniquity. You find a similar uh, thread in Psalm 73, where the writer expresses anguish over people who seem to be rebelling against God and getting away with it just fine. And Psalm 73 tells an extended story of wrestling with that. And I was troubled by this, and then I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their end. So he, he saw God's justice, certainly not always played out in this life. God, the righteous judge, sees what sin produces. Verses 10 to 15, then, I think, is the next shift. And boy, the, the references in verses 9 and 10 to Sodom and Gomorrah, wow! Those are, those are intended to be powerful. Uh, you rulers of Sodom, you rulers of Gomorrah. Well, he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking, to, wait a minute. <laughs> the people of Jerusalem and Judah would say, he's, he's, he's talking to us, isn't he? Uh, many people would look at Sodom and Gomorrah and feel a sense of self-righteousness. As you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, it's easy to look there and say, well, I'm not, how do we say it? I'm not that bad. Why is it we always compare ourselves down? We, we look around, surely someone has done this worse than me. Oh, there's one. Uh, see, I'm not that bad. Just a minute, I'll be right back. There's another one. I know, I know. You look through the newspaper. <laughs> See, there you go. I haven't done that. At least I haven't done that. And along the way, we end up measuring downward, and we, and we say, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm not that bad. I could be worse. And here, God, speaking through Isaiah to the people of Judah, Jerusalem, the capital city, listen to me, you rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. He's, he's doing that, intending that they'll say, whoa, that's how God sees them. They in their pride, I'm not that bad, missing the point entirely. Sinful people, indeed, notorious for blatant sin. Now, verses 10 through 15, what should capture us here is that the, 
the people who are being addressed here are very religious, aren't they? They're following the Old Testament law in terms of sacrifices and Sabbaths and feasts and holy convocations, meetings. God calls it the trampling of my courts. They're showing up for church, you might say, standing, singing the song, sitting down, opening up the scroll and Torah and, and doing all the religious stuff. But their hearts are far from God. It's a show. And I, my heading here captures it. God hates meaningless worship. Hates is not too strong of a term. God hates meaningless worship. You, you know where your heart is. Your heart is far from me, and you, you show up and act all holy and spiritual, and God says, I see through it. I see through all of it. I, I know what you did the rest of the week. And now you walk in there and quoting John 3.16 and and singing like nothing's wrong. What in the world is that? God speaks similarly to his people in other prophets. Amos, Amos 5 would be another one where you find words just like this, where God says, "Just, just, just stop. Get your hearts right and then come. He doesn't mean don't worship, but he's saying get your hearts right. See? And just like people around us, uh, you know, in in our community and the country and around the world would say, I hate hypocrites. Sometimes that's misused as a term. We all aspire to do better. All of us fail. Uh, Whether you're in a church or not, we all mess it up. Um, But God here doesn't appear to think much of fake worship either. Meaningless word. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Now, one would reasonably ask in verse 12, when God asks that question, who is required of you the trampling by courts? Well, what would be a, a, a certain answer to that? Who told, who told us to do all these sacrifices? Well, God did. You did. What do you mean who requires of you this trampling of my courts? It was your idea. We didn't make this up. We're just doing what you told us, right? And the answer is wrong. No, actually, because from the very beginning in Torah, in in the law, the books of the law, if if you ever read these things, um, the the Old Testament books, glad we're studying, is the class in Numbers or Deuteronomy right now? Just starting Deuteronomy. I'm so glad. As you study Deuteronomy, if you're in that class, look for how many times God addresses the heart. He's he's not just after the external form. Over and over again, even in the law, God says, but I'm after your heart. Oh, that you'll find it in Deuteronomy. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me always. Love the Lord your God. That's in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Teach these things diligently to your children. This in Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, it's there. God has always been after the heart. And right about the time you think, well, uh, I'm going to go to church and read my Bible more to please God. Well, yes, do those things. But but the the, the bringing of your heart in all honesty honesty before God, saying, God, here it is, the good and the bad and the ugly, you see it all. Honesty before God, true repentance, true humility. These are things the Lord always loves. He sees it all anyway. Tell the truth to him. We don't have to posture before God. 
I did pretty good this week. Oh, you did? I mean, good. Well, Lord, it wasn't that good. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Thank you for helping me. And do help me. See, see, you don't need to posture before God. So here in this big text, I mentioned the people of Judah and Jerusalem were meticulous keepers of external rules. They were. They got all the I's dotted and T's crossed externally. People at sunset, may I ask how your heart is today? Would you say your heart is hunger, hungry for God? Pursuing him? Warm toward him? If your heart was a campfire, how bright would it be? I don't know the answer to that. God does. This is a text, though, that says, you know, don't, don't, just, don't just bring the externals. Oh, come, yes. But bring your heart. Bring your heart. Now, in verse 16, God pleads with his people to repent and return, and he describes what that looks like, and he starts with the heart. You see this? Verse 16, it's, it's, like a, it's like a list. Some people make it seven, some people make it eight. If you take the first line as one, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. If that's one, I think you end up with seven. So like staccato, like bursts. Here's what it looks like. So it isn't just, it isn't just a, an external, it isn't just internal, it's two together. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Stop doing those things that are bad. Learn to do good. I know you're going to learn. It's going to be hard, but, but learn to do good. Seek justice. Can you get it perfect every time? No, probably not, but seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is what it looks like. A life shift, a life orientation shift, beginning with the cleansing of the heart before God. And then it looks like this, and it's practical stuff. It's the way you live. So God is providing a contrast to the paragraph before that was all about externals and no reality of life. And here he's saying, no, you start with the heart that's clean before me, and, and then it should, it should play itself out in the course of life. Verse 18, uh, probably one of the most famous calls to repentance in all of the Bible. How many of us have not heard those words? Sometimes you hear it in other literature or you'll hear a, a reference, even, even in, uh, at least in past generations, in news or other writing, and you might not even recognize it, but it's, it's from white as snow. Well, uh, other people use that term, and Isaiah does too. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. This is, a, this is an invitation to these sinful people. See, God isn't just shunning them. He's saying, come, come, meet with me. He's not saying, let's compromise half of my way, half of your way. That isn't it. It's an appeal to accept God's verdict in this courtroom. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And I, I reference here this this need for cleansing, scarlet and red are very strong colors, aren't they? And if you've ever had something strongly, uh, a strong color on something white, you know the panic to try to get it out. 
you try to shout it out or tight it out or whatever the latest commercial was to tell you to get the best detergent and say, well, there, finally. Well, why do you think it still sells on TV? Because we're still looking for good cleaning, right? You're, you're still saying, okay, how am I going to get that out? And some things you say, forget it. It's for working around the house because it doesn't work. Well, do you see the promise here? What is needed is, is, is the kind of cleansing that's, on a human level, hard or impossible to do. But God can do this to the human heart. You see that? Though your skins are, your sins rather, are, are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow, though they're red like crimson. No, God says, I can clean up the worst. I can cleanse the worst. I can. Come, watch me do it. You think you're going to shock me? No, I already know. Come, come to me. The invitation is extended. The Apostle John, I've referenced here, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from our sin. Continual cleansing. You need continual cleansing? And so do I. The blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from all of our sin. The mercy of God. New Testament, absolutely New Testament truth, bathed in the Old Testament as well. If you're willing and obedient, he says, you'll eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, oh man, the consequences of continuing down the road you're walking are going to be disastrous. We'll see those themes of judgment. Remember, judgment and hope, two of the major themes. You'll see that we'll see the themes of judgment played out. Next week is, is primarily about hope. The week after that, oh man, we step into the, one of the judgment sections, and we'll see that again. I'd like you to think with me about these two areas. I put it under responding to God's word and for further reading, verses 21 to 31. Uh, which I'm not going to step into quite as much, um, only by reference. If you're willing and obedient, verse 19, verse 26, God is speaking about this, and he said, I will restore. I'll restore your judges at the first, counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. We'll put all of that in its context in future studies. But the promise of God to restore, when, when a person comes in genuine repentance and confession... By the way, Christian or non-Christian alike, there are times we need to have a straight-up, honest talk to God. And he sees and he knows. And the promise that comes from him, if you're willing and obedient, then I will restore. God's promise is still good today. Come, come, come. And then I just want to reflect with you on this final bullet point. Do you see the gospel here? Okay, there's a courtroom setting. God is the righteous judge, and we, the accused, rightly accused of rebellion and sin. And what's the verdict? Well, guilty. Guilty is the verdict. Which one of us would stand before God as the ultimate and righteous judge and say, not guilty? Would you, for a moment? What a foolish thing. Songwriters put these things into words. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. And we the guilty, 
At that moment before God are undone, as we see in Isaiah 6. I am undone. I have no... If it were not for the righteousness of another to cover us, and that's the gospel, isn't it? We would be standing before that judgment place of God and say, I have, I have nothing to say. Guilty, and I, 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 my, I have no answer. But instead, the gospel says, at that moment of guilty, that you look to Christ who paid for all your guilt and who offers you his righteousness to cover you. You see the gospel here? So at the very moment you say guilty and trust Christ, it's as though he leaves the, 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 the judgment seat, so to speak, and comes and says, I stand with this one. That's the power of the gospel. Standing alone, I have no righteousness, nor do you to merit God's favor or entrance into heaven. People think about that sometimes. If you were to stand before you know, the, the, the gate of heaven and say, why would I get let in? You'd better not say, because I've, because I've what? Yeah, anything. I've lived a good life. I've been better than Billy Bob over here. I've been better than I've been. I, zero, zero will count because you are guilty. And if it we're not for a righteous, totally righteous who says, I covered him, I covered her. I paid for that person's sin completely, all of it. And I will cover you with my robe of righteousness, my dear child. Okay, now we're talking. To understand that, to grasp that, forgiven. No, forgiven. Washed clean, white as snow. Oh, the mercy of God. And there's the gospel. You see, there's the gospel. I hope that each of you and all those listening at other times have said, as with the songwriter, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. A statement of faith. A statement of faith. I I trust in Christ. I have no other way to plead but to say, Jesus, Jesus is my Savior. See, that's, that's an act of faith. And the Bible says, at that moment, when I trust Christ as my Savior, my sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross, and his righteousness covers me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. By the way, that's an allusion to Isaiah 53. We'll see it. Stand with me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for both the the angst and the sadness that you express at sin and false worship and also for the mercy that you extend here. The genuine offer of forgiveness to those who come in simple faith, trusting Christ as their Savior from sin. Nothing else will do it. Nothing. Our Father, I pray for each of us, wherever we stand with you, however long we've known you or waiting to do so. Our Father, would you, would you help us today to trust Christ as our Savior from sin, believing indeed that Jesus died for me. Our Father, I, I, help us as we live in this life, 
to come quickly to you, to honor your invitation to come. Thank you for the joy of the word of God. Bless us this week as we get in our groups and talk this over. Guide our conversations in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go. Come, come week after week. We'll work our way through 66 chapters of Isaiah in the months ahead. We'll see you soon.